My younger daughter is known in our family as the one who has an opinion about everything. Nothing has changed now that she is a woman in her 30s. One of her pet peeves in life is fortune cookies. Fortune cookies don't contain fortunes anymore, she complains. Instead, we get proverbs. And she will explain the difference to you with a long-suffering sigh. A fortune would be something like, you will soon receive an unexpected inheritance. Or, even more mysterious, a long-lost love shall appear before you. Proverbs, on the other hand, run something like, he who invests for the future will have a comfortable retirement. <laughs> you know, like, I kind of get her point. It's a little boring. What fun is it when you and your sweetheart are finishing your Kung Pao chicken and you crack open a proverb instead of a prediction for a mind-blowing future of wealth and happiness? Well, that's my prelude and a little bit of a disclaimer about what Jesus has to teach us today. The Beatitudes. The Beatitudes are nine sayings that fall into a well-known common pattern. In the ancient world, everybody knew this pattern. They were known as the wisdom proverbs. The examples come right out of the Hebrew scriptures. For example, Proverb 13. Misfortune pursues sinners, but prosperity rewards the righteous. Okay, right? You can kind of follow the rhythm of that. Or how about Proverb 19? Wealth brings many friends, but the poor are left friendless. Well, boo-hoo, like, what's up with that? But let's be clear, we have sayings like that ourselves. A bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, or many hands make light work. So you might ask yourself, what do all Proverbs have in common? Well, they attempt to reinforce some generally accepted wisdom about how life works. Often Proverbs sum up how those who live respectable lives as upstanding members of society, people who work hard and are frugal, will experience a return on their priorities. Some of you may be familiar with the prosperity gospel. And you'll know that the proverbial wisdom there has made its way into the mainstream of Christianity. When Jesus begins his teaching, what we now refer to as the Beatitudes, the format is very familiar to his listeners. He begins with, blessed are. That would have been a common trope as a way to begin. And his listeners would settle in, waiting for some useful nuggets to help them get ahead in life, or if not get ahead, maybe at least to avoid calamitous poverty or illness. But the content of Jesus' nuggets, oh, baby. Someone once compared the content of the Beatitudes as drinking from a glass that looks like lemonade and tastes like bug spray. <laughs> Blessed are you who are poor. Blessed are you who are hungry. Blessed are you who weep. 
There is a shocking substitution of bad things for good, where blessedness is equated with the very things that people do their level best to avoid. Poverty, hunger, grief, and persecution. But to make his point even stronger, and maybe a little bit more confusing, Jesus tacks on a great reversal of fortune. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you will be filled. Blessed are you who are poor, for you will inherit God's entire kingdom. But I think we have to ask ourselves the question, have the Beatitudes lost their shock value for us? I don't think too many of us, there will be some who are here this morning, are worried about where their next meal is going to come from. So maybe blessings on poverty don't sound, don't hit you in the heart. But what if Jesus were to say something like, blessed are you who have cancer, for you will know everlasting health. Or blessed are you whose prayers go unanswered, for you will see God face to face. You probably begin to notice something. Your reaction to what Jesus is saying depends entirely upon your current circumstances. His words don't change, but they do sound different depending on what's happening in your life. A former colleague of mine once told me a story about the time when he was a student, probably late 1950s, early 1960s, when he was a student at the Episcopal Seminary at University of the South, just outside of Chattanooga, Tennessee. <clears throat> In his day, the seminary was still exclusively white. Confederate flags hung from the ceiling of the chapel. Portraits of odious Confederate bishops hung in the classrooms. But many of the would-be priests felt that there was something very wrong at Swanee. They saw all around them young black men who staffed the kitchens and served food in the dining halls, but weren't considered appropriate candidates for the ordained ministry. And so they decided to try to learn something. The students encouraged the black servers to join them when their shifts ended, and soon others from the town came in and they kind of formed an impromptu coffee house, if you will. And one afternoon, as they were leaving their self-integrated coffee house, they came across a young man who was laying on the sidewalk bleeding. It was hard to tell if he'd maybe had an accident on his bicycle or he had been attacked by people who didn't like what they were doing. But a young black line cook jumped forward and ran to the man's side and checked to see if he was injured and began to, to pray out loud. And my friend said he never forgot what came next. An angry shout came from across the courtyard yelling, get your filthy black hands off him. And he said it was that ugly cry that a 
weakened the just, justice in the hallowed, segregated halls of the University of the South more than any of the previous protests. And my friend was telling me this story during another time of controversy in the church, one of those continuing battles that we seem to have over who is worthy to receive the sacraments of the church, including the sacrament of ordination. At different times in our history, that list has included people with darker skin and divorcees and women and queer people. At one time, anyone who identified with one or more of those categories, including me, have been deemed to be unclean and able to taint the church and anyone for whom she prays. All of those exclusions have reinforced the universal wisdom of their day, just like a classic proverb. All of them were stay-in-your-lane conventional wisdom until someone dared to turn conventional wisdom on its head. It still chills me to remember my friend's story of his seminary days, but it chills me even more to think how far we have yet to go before the radical, upside-down insight of the Beatitudes is truly heard and lived out. On the day when we first come to him, Jesus begins to teach our hearts. Blessed are the poor, the hungry, those who weep, and those who show mercy. Now, in our conventional wisdom, when we hear the word blessed, we tend to think we have cracked open a good fortune cookie. God is blessing us with the good life, and though not all can participate, well, God must have God's reasons. And the opposite in our conventional wisdom goes something like this. If you're not blessed, you're receiving punishment. And of course, it's the good and the pure who get blessed, and everyone else, the poor and the hungry and the lonely, well, they must have screwed up somehow, right? Maybe we just can't see it. God must have God's reasons. Well, the thing is, the Beatitudes actually don't tell us what to do. Instead, the purpose of them is to expose how we think, to rip away the shroud from our conventional wisdom. And more importantly, the Beatitudes tell us who God is. The extraordinary Lutheran pastor, Nadia Boltz Weber, in her powerful book, New Beatitudes for a Hurting World, reminds me of all the work I have yet to do. And I can't do better this Sunday than to share these with you. Blessed are the agnostics. Blessed are those who doubt. Those who aren't sure. Those who can still be surprised. Blessed are those who have nothing to offer. Blessed are they for whom death is not an abstraction. Blessed are they who have buried their loved ones, for whom tears could fill an ocean. Blessed are they who have loved enough to know what loss feels like. 
Blessed are they who don't have the luxury of taking things for granted anymore. Blessed are they who can't fall apart because they have to keep it together for everyone else. Blessed are those who aren't over it yet. Blessed are those who no one ever notices. The kids who sit alone at middle school lunch tables. The laundry guys in the hospital. The sex workers and the night shift street sweepers. Blessed are the forgotten. Blessed are the closeted. Blessed are the unemployed, the unimpressed, and the underrepresented. Blessed are the wrongly accused, the ones who never catch a break, the one for whom life is always hard. For Jesus chooses to surround himself with people like them. Blessed are those without documentation. Blessed are the ones without the lobbyists. Blessed are the burned out social workers and the overworked teachers and the pro bono case takers. And blessed are the kids who step between the bullies and the weak. Blessed is everyone who's ever forgiven me when I didn't deserve it. Blessed are the merciful, for they do get it. They totally get it. You are of heaven, and Jesus blesses you. Nadia reminds us that Jesus came to speak to people who have nothing. People who have left friends and family, and people who are entirely friendless and alone in the world. I know I have a long way to go before I've fully embraced God's upside-down way of knowing my blessedness and the blessedness of others. So can you hear it? Can you hear Jesus speaking something that turns the values of this world upside down? The values of power and control? The values that say, my group is better than your group, and I need to find a way to maintain my advantage? But what we hear Jesus saying is, be it not so with you. Amen.